Welcome back to From the Bridge, coming to you once again from beautiful Wadmalaw Island, South Carolina. This is your captain, Rick Jones, speaking from the bridge. We've got a great show today where we'll be discussing what I feel is the single most important ingredient in corporate sponsorship, namely bait. And we'll be joined by my friend, Alex Vergara, a longtime marketing executive and college professor who will discuss lifetime learning and why that's so important, along with some other things. And we'll have a most unusual On the Road with Rick segment. So let's cast off. I'm a fisherman. We named our agency Fishbait Marketing based on the term you got to bait the hook to suit the fish and not the fisherman. Here's what I know about fish. They don't care anything about fishermen. Mostly what fish care about is food. And that's why bait is so important. Same thing in sponsorship, especially in sponsorship sales. Bait is the why of sponsorship, and engineering answers that why question. I like to talk about event marketing as like a new automobile. Think about when you buy a new car. You know, you, uh, you park it in a place where the neighbors can look at it. Um, if you're like me, you're like, you're not going to let your wife drive it. And you're certainly not going to let your children eat anything in the car because your, your car is a, a work of art. Well, finally, your little boy spills a chocolate milkshake in the back seat of your car and you can get on with it. Because the truth is, while the automobile may be a thing of beauty, it is designed to be a transportation vehicle. And here's what I know about cars. Without a roadmap, the auto will not go in the right direction. And without any gasoline, it will not travel at all. Well, an event sponsorship is a marketing vehicle. And the success of the sponsorship depends on the correct marketing plan and appropriate funds to exploit all elements of that plan. So your job is to give the prospect the plan. And the plan starts with the bait. Engineering is the process of matching the objectives of the sponsor prospect with your assets architecture. And that requires significant research and detail. You can never spend enough time learning about the prospect's business. And once you know about their business, you can match your saleable assets with those corporate sponsors. And that's based on a variety of criteria, things like What's the availability of the asset? What is the specificity of the audience? Are they asking for category exclusivity? And what's the definition of that category? What are their marketing objectives? What are the activation opportunities? What's the timing? What's the budget? And all those other things. And finally, you got to determine how do we package it and how do we price it? So there are six key questions that you need to answer for every prospect. Question number one. How do they make money? Because here's the bottom line. They are doing this not philanthropically. They are investing in your event in order to make more money. Or as my buddy Jack Birch used to say, they want to sell two more for more. So how do they make money? Number two, what is their positioning? What is their unique positioning in the marketplace? I like to use a very simplistic example of that. Years ago, there were three pizza companies, Little Caesars, Pizza Hut, and Domino's. The positioning for Little Caesars was cheap. It was cheap pizza. 
the positioning for Domino's was it was fast. They delivered it. And the positioning for Pizza Hut was it was good. They largely served you in their store. They all were successful with those unique positionings. Question number three, what are their brand attributes? What are attributes that you can positively link to your event and to your fans? Question number four, what are their corporate values? Because often in sponsorship, you can do things from a higher calling positioning. Number five, and this may be the most important question of all, what are their business challenges? Because if you can solve a problem or maximize an opportunity, you're going to have more success. And finally, what are they currently doing? What are their current marketing initiatives that you can piggyback on? It's going to be the rare person that can come in and say, let me tell you, everything you're doing is wrong and come with my event and let me do it right. No, 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 no. Marketers don't create avalanches. They just know how to snowboard on them better than other people. And so those are the six key questions you have to ask each prospect. So let me give you an example of bait. We had the privilege of working with MasterCard when they were the sponsor of World Cup 1994 here in the United States. Now, every agency that pitched MasterCard had come to MasterCard and said, look, the only way you're going to get your arms around soccer in America is to talk to soccer-playing families. And specifically, you need to get involved with youth soccer. We came in and said, absolutely not. That makes no sense. That makes sense for Coke or maybe McDonald's or Snickers. But you're not going to have your young person playing soccer walk off the field and say, hey, mom, let's go use the MasterCard. That's just certainly not going to happen. So we focus not on the sport of soccer, but rather of the event of the World Cup. And we focused on the economic impact that the World Cup was going to have in America. And so we coined a phrase, welcoming the world to America for MasterCard. Well, what it really meant was welcoming the world's money to America. And we wanted to make sure that all the fans that were going to the World Cup from around the world were going to spend their money using a MasterCard. And so our entire program was built along that idea of bait. It's about money. It's about utilization of the card for the fans. And so we did things like merchant seminars where we showed merchants in the nine World Cup cities how they could benefit by promoting MasterCard to the fans. We had bill statements, counter cards, a variety of things that promoted MasterCard in those particular cities. We had a list of things called master values that fans could pick up with a map of the city that had specific retailers where you could get a discount by using your MasterCard. And we had welcome centers and airports and train stations in the nine cities. I also believe you got to, with bait, you got to start big and finish big. We were fortunate with MasterCard that uh, uh, at the World Cup draw, there were 14 cities competing for nine spots. We went out and bought a full-page ad in all 14 cities uh, that said, uh, uh, Chicago, we always knew you were world-class. Uh, congratulations on being World Cup. Well, they only picked nine, so I canceled five the night before once they announced, but everybody said, how did MasterCard know to be able to have a full-page ad in the paper the next day? So this is a great example of bait, finding the right turf, the right positioning, the right communication for your client. So we'll continue our discussion of bait next week from the bridge. 
Now it's time for our Tuesday tip. We've been talking today about the importance of bait, but another important thing in both fishing and sponsorship sales is timing. Let's first look at fishing. When do you catch fish? Well, you catch fish when the tide's right. You catch fish when they're ready to bite, and they bite when they're hungry, and they bite in the right conditions. I live on a tidal river. I never catch fish at low tide nor at high tide. When I catch fish is when the tide turns. When it turns to come in, big fish follow little fish back in to eat them. When it turns to go out, big fish follow little fish back out in order to eat them. So they bite when they're hungry, and they bite in the right conditions. Well, that's pretty much the same in corporate sponsorship sales. Timing is maybe the most underutilized ingredient of all. So what is the timing of their fiscal year? What is the timing of their media purchase schedule? What is their timing of their existing sponsorship contracts? Because rarely does anybody have any discretionary income. In fact, they got to quit doing something before they can do something with you. What's the timing of the person you're selling to? Is he new? Is he a regular buyer? Or is she someone that is about to leave and go to another place? And finally, what is the timing of planned process for exploitation? For example, if you're going to sell to someone that sells through grocery channels, they normally pitch those promotions 13 months in advance to the grocery trade, meaning you better be there at least 20 months in advance. That's a long lead time. Deal with it because that's the timing you're going to have to do. If you want to catch fish and you want to catch customers, you got to know the right time to fish. Our guest angler today is a true renaissance man, my good pal, Alex Vergara. Alex is a Cuban-American and a lifelong Floridian. He was a longtime marketing executive at Disney's Wide World of Sports, working for my buddy Mike Millay. He now owns his own consultancy and is an adjunct professor at Central Florida University. Please help me in welcoming Alex Bergera to the bridge today. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. Good morning, Coach. Rick, great to be on. Hey, I want to start with a compliment and a question at the same time. You are the very best person I know who practices lifetime learning. How have you done that, and why is that so important? Well, as long as I can remember, uh, I've been reading. Uh, I go back to you know being a, uh, a young kid. My dad gave me a book at eight years old that talked about the 100 most famous people in world history, and I started reading then, and I just haven't stopped. Um, and it's really been kind of a mantra of mine of always be – uh, learning, uh, whether it be through school, whether it be through uh, seminars or all the new platforms that are out there now. And I would say I've really accelerated it over the last 10 years. As you get as you get on, uh, you just realize you have to keep learning with this crazy world around us with all the social media and all the new platforms. And uh, I just read a statistic the other day that kind of blew me away that a bachelor's degree, when you get out of higher ed, is actually now nowadays obsolete in five years. So uh, we always have to be learning, um, whether it be about life and changing your perspective as you go through it. So it's just always been something I've done and what I know about and I've continued to pursue that. And I've got books all over my house, which my wife tells me not to buy anymore. But 
it's my uh, it's my vice, I guess, but I enjoy it. Well, I, I have this bad habit of buying books uh, it, it, more expensively because I buy them in airport bookstores where they're like ridiculously marked up. But I just cannot get on a plane without having a book, and uh, you know, I, I'll carry my my Kindle sometimes, but I just like the feeling of books. I like paper. I like turning pages. I like writing in the margins of the books. I know you've talked about being such a voracious reader. Talk to me a little bit about this. We're going to talk a little bit later about your teaching, but you know, you're with a lot of young people today. Do you find that young people are reading as much as, as maybe our generation did? Um, I don't think so. I think they're learning, uh, learning on the fly in much shorter stints. Um, I remember uh, years ago, I went to a uh, technology conference at the University of Florida, and it was, a, it was a, a room full of about 300 academics, and they had the president on stage and a couple of uh, very smart uh, uh, medical students and things like that. And they were talking about this shift from bricks to clicks, and the academics talked about what they thought was coming and this, that, and the other. And then the medical student just really, just matter of fact, says, you know, our, we're a different generation, and you guys just need to understand that we don't read books. And there was like this nervous laughter coming out of the audience. And then they kind of stopped and, and said, uh-oh, this is really changing. And this is a very, very bright young man. So I think they're reading differently, uh, short snippets. That's how they, they've grown up. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I, I think it's just a different way to do it. I have a lot on Kindle as well. And uh, uh, Dr. Bill Sutton, who was a mentor of mine, I called him one time and I said, do you really read your Kindle, your, your complete your book? He says, no, that's just for the plane ride and things like that. It's really hard for me to go A to Z and finish a book on Kindle. I just, I'm not doing as well as the hard book. I like, I'm like you. I like, I like putting it through the grind and writing and reading and, and making notes and things like that. So. Yeah, I think it's a it's a changing generation, but you know, if you just sit still for a while, it'll come back. It'll come back. People start reading books again. Well, Coach Wooden, you know, famously said once upon a time that when you're through improving, you're through. Uh, I'm a big fan of John Maxwell's, and he talks about every human being needs a personal growth plan, and you've certainly lived that. Now, tell me about a little bit. Was was that from your background? I know your dad came from Cuba. Uh, was education a, a very important platform in your family growing up as a Cuban American? Absolutely. And as I've looked at my heritage, my grandfather, who was a, a political uh, uh, leader in Cuba in the, in the 1930s, was actually uh, an academic at the University of Havana Medical School before he went into politics. And then my dad was always a very, uh, I mean, he was really the first kind of Renaissance man uh, that I, that I, got to know and meet and he always had history books on the shelf and things like that um and it's just always been there and here i am now doing uh as an adjunct i never thought i would have been in the classroom but i really really enjoy it because it keeps you on your toes uh we start at eight o'clock in the morning on mondays and you know you just see uh talent of all different levels and, and you really realize that in order to sustain ourselves through the next 15 20 years uh, we, we're going to have to keep learning along with them and learning new things. But, uh, if, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Maxwell, uh, John Maxwell, because uh, I know you read him a lot. But I saw him speak at uh, NACTA, the collegiate uh, event, last week. 
and he's written 82 books, Rick. Um, and he talked about leadership and he says, my next book, and he, I have to make sure I pronounce it correctly. This is what he said. It's leadership. Because if you get to a certain point where you're leading a certain way and you hit that wall, if you don't shift, that's as far as you're going to go. And I thought it was a very appropriate uh, statement. So I know you're a big fan of his, but that's his next one coming out. And he spent a lot of time talking about how are you shifting to lead the next gen and lead yourself through the, through the next part of uh, what's happening in this business world. Now, you're one of the rare breeds. You're actually a native Floridian. Uh, yeah, there ain't many of those down there. My wife, my wife is another one of those. Uh, you went to Florida. You worked at, uh, at the U at the University of Miami. You, you also uh, recently helped us out with a major project at FIU. Uh, talk a little bit about each of those institutions and what you've learned from each of those. Um, I, I think it all starts with great leadership. Um, and it's, it's not meant to be a cliche, but, uh, leaders in college athletics set the tone for the whole athletic department. Uh, when I was going to school, we had a great leader who, uh, I'm still friends with 30 years later, uh, Bill Carr, and he was a young leader trying to manage some, uh, a pretty, uh, zealot coach in Charlie Pell, uh, if you remember him from his Clemson days. And, uh, but he set the tone and the vision for the program and then, a couple athletic directors later, uh, Jeremy Foley was around for 25 years, and you know he he established a program uh, at the University of Miami. Uh, the coaches were really leading the charge, uh, and uh, got to work with some great coaches there. One of my favorite experiences from a leadership perspective was working, and I know he's a good friend of yours, uh, Leonard Hamilton, who's now at Florida State, and we were building that basketball program. Miami had not. Uh, been able to do anything in basketball at all. And I had spent some time in the CBA, so they thought I was a basketball uh, promotion savant. And I went there, and frankly, nothing worked. We were in the old arena, and we were working hard as a team and trying a lot of different things. And we had just gotten into the Big East, and we were getting killed. Uh, Patrick Ewing was center for Georgetown, Alonzo Mourning, and our guys were so outmanned. And I remember one night working really hard and going down to his office, and I was kind of discouraged, a little bit younger, and we were beating up our heads against a wall. The AD's putting a lot of heat on our, on our marketing team. And I talked to Leonard about it. He was in there. You know, he works hard and still to this day at 70 years old, keeps working. And he says, Alex, you just got to understand one thing. We're building a program. We're building a program from the ground up. We are literally, like John Wooden said, putting the socks on one at a time. And I remember that night vividly. And every time I talked to Leonard, I talked to him about that conversation because it really had a big impact on me. Um, FIU was uh, good leadership on the campus level. We tried to bring the athletic department together with the leadership of the campus. So every campus is a little different, but they do have a lot of similarities. And it all really does start with, with great leadership. Every, every campus has passionate fans. Uh, I don't see fans who are apathetic in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so those are all things that are that are happening in the space, but I, it really does start with leadership. It's the same way with corporate. You know, if you got a great leader uh, who can see things before other people see them, and is comfortable and flexes with the changes, I, I think that's a great place to start. Well, you mentioned Leonard Hamilton. You know, one of the things that I like about coaches, he has such a strong faith. When we did a, a coaches versus cancer or a charity challenge a few years ago. 
each coach got to pick what what uh, charity he wanted uh, uh, his um, um, money to go to, and he picked his church. And I like that. You know, he just he 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 just was a guy that was always optimistic, and and his kids played. I, I think even when they're out, man, have played. Um, you know very optimistically and he's done a heck of a job obviously at Florida State in a really really tough league um you know you talk about leaders then you got a chance to go work at Disney uh you know an organization with with lots and lots of great leaders let's talk a little bit about about your time there and some key learnings from that well again same thing starts with leadership uh I, I really did get all of us that were there that started this thing literally from a piece of paper uh why will the sports which became the, uh, the world premier sports destination for amateur athletes. Um, we were just around not only great leadership, but really, really smart people. But smart people who realized that they were stewards of a brand. And the stewards of the brand, yeah, there was, you know, there was always corporate. There might have been a little ego here and there. But I always got a sense of tremendous, hey, we're, up, we're, up, we're, we're doing something special. And we've got the power of the brand behind it. And a lot of people think you had a lot of money, but in sports, we didn't. Uh, if we had a good idea, we could go get the money. But, um, you know, it was all about great leadership, uh, respecting the brand. And ultimately, we were all there. Every decision was based on the guest. Yeah, we wanted to make money and return shareholder value. But it was all about the guest. Guest first. Guest, guest, guest. It, and we learned it from day one in a program called Traditions. And, you know, you've been around a long time. A lot of people start a new job and they're excited to get started. They want to get their computer. They want to get their email. They want to start working. Disney would not let you do that until you finish three days of what they call Traditions. And for those three days, some people call it a brainwashing. I don't think so. I think it was learning the story of Walt from the very beginning and all his hurdles that he went through and all the diversification of product. And then you just became a steward of that brand, um, and, and lived it for the rest of the time you were there. Cleanliness, uh, exceeding guest expectations, uh, over-delivering, over-communicating, just things that became part of our DNA. And to this day, I still use it uh, quite a bit and refer to it often. You know, people look at the Disney culture, and they, they mistakenly think that Walt was an overnight success. You know, and so many, they look kind of like Sam Walton, who went bankrupt with his first uh, Ben Franklin stores before he built that little tiny uh, chain called Walmart. Uh, Walt, Walt had struggles. I think young people today see the world from a social standpoint that everything looks better and easier. And I worry about that. Um, what Walt built was built on a great foundation of learning of where he had failed at first and then learning from those failures and, and, and building on that. Um, were there things that y'all did at Disney that you thought were going to work and then you've quickly realized, Hey, maybe, maybe we need to do something differently. Yeah. We, you know, we had over eight, 1500, 1800 events. I remember one vividly because uh, a small group of us worked on it pretty intensely for about three years. Uh, at the time, Orlando had decided they were going to let their minor league double-A baseball team move from Tinker Field, which is a minor league institution, but they didn't want to put any money into it. So the, the, the double Rays at the time, now the Tampa Bay Rays, 
were going to move the franchise. I think they were looking at Birmingham or Macon. I don't remember. But Disney stepped up um, and relocated the facility, the, the, the team to our facility. And there was a camp of us that said, man, this is really tough work. Minor league baseball is a hustle. It's 75 games. you got an outdoor venue with the rains in the summer. This is not going to work. And we worked really hard for four years, uh, and uh, it didn't work. And we finally let it go. And we, we were of the camp, hey, um, we don't think this is going to work. But once leadership says, okay, let's get it done, we all went all in. We didn't give it you know, any half-assed treatment. We went and did it, but it just didn't work. We uh, Miley Baseball in Orlando, Orlando's kind of outgrown that a little bit. And being a far away, you know, I just remember having promotions and mascots and all kinds of things coming in and looking up in the sky and realizing that the, the thunderstorms were going to come in. And I think that's why, frankly, Major League Baseball has not been working too well in the state of Florida. I, I don't know if Major League Baseball will ever work here because of all the other things that are happening. But, yeah, we, we, lo- we took our lumps on that one. There's a lot of competition uh, in the baseball business uh, if you're located in the state of Florida. Um, you know, that's for sure. Um, you know, I, um, uh, I, I'm a big believer in what you call fail fast. Um, it's okay to fail, just try to fail fast. But I, people that don't make mistakes, people that don't have failures in their lives, I worry about them because they haven't tried stuff. They haven't pushed the envelope. If your if your you know entire career is based on one success after another, that I think you've you've not tried very hard. You're now in a you're now a professor. You're now teaching uh, at the University of Central Florida as an adjunct professor. You know what 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 do you like about it, and what's maybe surprised you most about it? Uh, well, I just finished my third semester. As a matter of fact, I pushed the grades out uh, this morning to them, those students. So I teach an event management facility ops class, which may sound a little unusual being a sales marketing branding guy, but I look at it more from the what are people doing from an innovation perspective in the venues and, and creating more revenue. So I take that slant to it. And after three years of doing it, uh, I, I do walk out of those classes feeling like, um, for lack of a better word, the, the top third of the students, uh, it, it reassures me the talent and the drive and the commitment that they have uh, to this industry and the passion that they have for it. And so uh, you know, I, I remain very positive on, on those kids leading the way and being in a good place. I mean, there's a really lot of bright uh uh, minority students and, and female leaders, which we didn't have when we were growing up, that are really going to take the, the bull by the horns and be very, very successful leaders uh, in this space. Um, I think the one area that I uh, surprises me overall is the generalization. When I have two teenagers and and uh, we you know we work with them on this as well is writing skills. I think are and I, I really believe that if you can communicate either verbally or in writing, uh, you're, you're going to have a big advantage. Um, some people are introverted more so than maybe they need to be, but you respect that. And then, then you've got to be able to put it on paper, but if you can't do those two things together, um, you're going to, you're going to struggle a little bit. And I think that's probably been my biggest takeaway. Um, how do you help folks to, whether you, they go to a Toastmasters class, or, I mean, really, the best way to learn how to write is, 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 uh, is reading. 
So uh, I think that's probably my biggest takeaway. But in terms of the industry and the leadership being in a good place, I, I have no doubt that our people graduating are going to be very, very talented. Um, so that's one thing, Rick. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is um, I, I do an innovation session with them where I don't give them very much direction. And I just throw a couple things out there. And then I, I call, I do like a sprint where they have like an hour to work on it. And I, I don't give them a lot of direction on purpose. And then I change some things up. I move teams around, and they're a little uncomfortable with lack of clarity, uh, lack of direction. Which we all know, we may have a project, and we don't. We have to create it. We have to create it out of nothing. You've done that millions of times. People don't even know what their problem is. You have to tell them, uh, and and they struggle a little bit with that. So I try to teach them some of those skills, and then talk about it and review it afterwards. So being comfortable with uh, lack of clarity, the the gray area, which we all live in sometimes, I think is an is a opportunity for this generation to get better at. You know, I like to do a little stunt with people that are uncomfortable about change as I make them go a week and shake hands left-handed. Um, you know, I mean, you know, you think about it, you, when you shake hands right-handed, it's just so easy. It's so natural. It's so unnatural to shake hands left-handed. But you learn, hey, I can get comfortable doing that. And, it, and it, it's kind of a fun little way just for people to say, hey, uh, I, I need to be comfortable in my uncomfortableness uh, in order to, to grow and to move and, and to go from that. Hey, A.V., you've been great today. Thanks for joining us. We're going to have you back soon uh, here from the bridge. We'll close the show today with On the Road with Rick. And as I told you at the top of the show, we've got a very unusual stop today. Several years ago, I became involved with Epworth Children's Home in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, I'm a Methodist, and the Methodists have supported Epworth Children's Home that originally started out as an orphanage uh, over 100 years ago. Now, let me tell you a story about being a Methodist. If you saw the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when uh, Jackie Robinson asks Branch Rickey of the Dodgers why he selected him. And Branch said, it's simple, Jackie. I'm a Methodist. You're a Methodist. God's a Methodist. (laughs) I love that scene in the movie. Well, the Methodists in South Carolina have been supporting Epworth for a number of years. And my wife, Charlotte, and I have been our church's representative for Epworth for a number of years. And today, Charlotte is on their board of directors. Now, you're saying to yourself, okay, what does this have to do with On the Road with Rick? Well, Epworth Children's Home originally sustained themselves as a working farm that included dairy cows. And Epworth residents and their staff started making ice cream in the 1930s using a government subsidy of peanut butter along with fresh cream from the farms. The original peanut butter ice cream was served at Sunday dinner on holidays and special occasions. Well, guess what? It's been available for visitors in local Methodist churches for years, but now you can buy their ice cream. We're currently in 42 locations across South Carolina, and we're adding markets every week. We sell in churches across the state with special programs for their members. 
We've actually launched four flavors. We've got the original peanut butter. We've got caramel with caramel-filled chocolate. We've got vanilla bean, and we've got vanilla chocolate swirl with peanut butter cups. We're rolling out more flavors as we grow, and best of all, 100% of the profits benefit the home. Our first anniversary of our launch is coming up in July 2019. So if you find yourself in South Carolina, go to your favorite store and pick up a little original peanut butter ice cream from Epworth Children's Home. That's it for our show today. We'll see you next time from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. But I can't be nobody else but me. Yeah. I'm sick and tired of trying to